Hello and welcome to Trash Arts Tick, episode 25, with myself Ryan, we got Sam, and we got Jackson. <laughs> so on today's show, Sam's going to bring us up to speed with industry um, and what's been going on in the world of film. Then we, well, Sam had the pleasure of interviewing Martin W. Payne, who's a independent um, actor in the UK. Uh, so we've got that. Then we're also going to be doing our monthly horror talk and this month we're going to be discussing vampires and everything vampire related within films so without further ado over to you sam for industry so over the last few years there's been a lot of talk about there being a third tron film Ooh. um i actually haven't seen tron one or two which is weird i absolutely adore the soundtrack by daft punk and that's what actually leads into this because someone was recently one of the producers was talking and saying well, yeah we've been speaking to daft punk because that was their first, they got the script and then their first project was like, okay, thought to Daft Punk, try and get the original director back from the second film. <clears throat> but during this time, Mr. Really, I just don't get him anymore, Jared Leo, has been attached to a Tron film for the last three years and he's still attached. So there is going to be a third Tron film with Daft Punk and for some reason, Jared Leo. And apparently they're not looking to reboot it it's going to be the same one. So I imagine, uh, what's his face to be in it? Jeff Bridges. Mm -hmm. Kind of sacrificed himself at the end of the second one, though. Well, no need to watch uh, the second <laughs> film anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Jared Leo is looking to jump on that franchise as he's desperately seeking his own franchise. Um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't excite me because, I don't know, it's, it's Jared Leo. He just doesn't excite me whatsoever anymore. I'm more concerned about the fact that he's running a cult. But, uh. <laughs> I didn't know he was running a cult. That's for another time. Brad Pitt is attached to an action film, which kind of sounds really cool. Firstly, you don't really get many action films with Brad Pitt, and he's getting pretty old, so he's getting into that Liam Neeson, Brad Pitt stage. But then also, he just won an Oscar, so he could choose whatever he wants. So this film is from um, David Leitch, who's the guy who did uh, Deadpool 2, Hobson Shaw, and more importantly, he did the first John Wick with the other dude, who I can't remember his name, but he did John Wick. Uh. So this film is about five assassins on a train with a similar mission. And it's not too much else, but the fact that Brad Pitt's in it, and it's an assassin film in a train, and this guy's considered a great action director, I'm in. Yeah, there sounds like a lot of uh, kind of comedy potential in that as well. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing. I, I'm, it just sounds like an exciting kind of film. So we'll see if that goes. I mean, David Leik has got a lot of films that he's trying to do at the moment. So we'll see. There was a film that came out in 2010 called Life in a Day. Life in a Day was a really nice film. And I remember I got the opportunity to go to a screening of it. It was like a preview in the city. And Life in a Day was a collection of everyone's life across the world, from like the Amazon jungles to Portsdown Hill. It's really strange. Um, the directors who were involved with that was Ridley Scott and um, Kevin McDonald. So they decided to produce this and they decided to do a sequel. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a new one coming out made specifically for YouTube. So YouTube are funding them to do this again. I wonder if it's going to be as open as it was before where anyone could submit. I'm kind of curious because it was a really beautiful little film. It gave a bit of like a hope but also just showing you every just little corner that these people had captured from across the world. So it'd be interesting to see that in very different times. Cool. Thanks for that, Sam. Yeah. So, yeah, back with Sam, actually. So um, we've had the pleasure of working with Martin W. Payne on several different projects. Very talented actor. And um, during this week, Sam had the pleasure of conducting an interview with him. So, yeah, over to you, Sam. Well, I'm on Trash Out's Take with Martin W. Payne, a very good actor and a good friend of ours. How are you, man? Oh, not too bad, actually. Thanks so much. And uh, it's good to be on here at last. Yeah, we had you recently to discuss um, filming during coronavirus, but here we're talking more about you as an actor rather than just as a producer. Yeah, and also the, the, the impact of COVID-19 on everything. Uh, that's a very, uh, I suppose, technically specific area to be in, um, as opposed to actually being on camera and doing some crazy things. So, yeah, I know which side I'd prefer to be on. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you into acting? Um, I, I, 
eons ago, um, because of course everyone should know that I'm ancient. Um, I um, it was actually careers evening at school. Um, so you know, back in, back in the days when we had the fifth year at school, rather than year. 12 or 10 or whatever it is, I don't know. Um, there was a careers evening, and one of the places I wanted to actually go to um, was uh, onto the stage in the school hall to um, talk to a couple of people who sat behind a table um, who were representing a, um, a drama school. Because um, I said to my, my parents who were with me that, oh, yeah, I f fancy really going to drama school after this because, you know, leave school, go, go to drama school, that'd be good. And um, I hadn't really shown that much interest in, in drama during my school years. Um, and um, they said, well, yeah, yeah, okay, you can go and talk to them, but um, I think we should also go and talk to the, these people over here. And, of course, then what happened was I went to um, college and I became an accountant. Obviously, the uh, going up on the careers evening to the drama school was uh, not the route <laughs> that uh, my parents intended for me. Um, um, and not surprisingly, given the fact that I suppose I was probably around about eight years old when I played um, Blind Pew in a um, school primary school production of um, Peter Pan, um, which was about the limit of my acting experience at that stage. So uh, yeah, that's 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 where I would have liked to have gone. Not the case, and so therefore just returned to acting in more later life um, because I, I got involved in, well, my parents got involved in going to, as guests to a murder mystery uh, weekend. Oh, yeah. And, um, and uh, they booked one um, because they saw about it in the newspaper and they simply said, yeah, okay, we've booked it and we're all going, the three of us. And I I chickened out. Um, I chickened out of my first murder weekend as a um, guest because I thought, oh, there'd be blood involved and I've got a fear of blood. So I didn't really fancy the idea. I, I, I dropped out. My aunt went instead and that caused a bit of chaos. Um, but they came back for that, said it was really good. So convinced me that I should go on a future murder uh, weekend, which I did as a guest. Um, and we went probably around about 15, 18 times over the next four or five years, something like that. And then I got asked if I wanted to actually join the um, the company that produced the Motor Weekends. Um, so, yeah, so that's when I really started um, acting of any description. And that was about 25 years ago. And you, so you're still doing it as well, aren't you, the Motor Weekends? Yeah, um, obviously not at the moment time. because COVID-19, hotels are closed. Yeah, yeah, still doing those. Um, they're, they're really great for improv uh, because you get given a character and uh, you get character details, you get the date of birth, uh, you get their family background, what they do as a job, any relationships they're with. Uh, and it's basically an A4 sheet of paper all about the character that you're playing. And then you get dumped down in the middle of a load of guests who can ask you questions about literally anything. And you need to respond to them as a real person in character. So if someone can ask you your birthday, um, and that's fine, you can give them your birthday because you've memorized that because it is on the character details. And then the real so-and-so's um, just come out with a, oh, yeah, right, so what star sign are you? <laughs> and you've got to know that level of detail. Um, and, and then you have arguments with people. You have to have rows with other um, professional motor weekenders. So you, you just you know what the rouse about. You know the point you've got to get across to this live audience. But you don't actually know what you're going to say. You don't know what the other character that you're arguing with is going to say back. Um, and you've just got to really um, spark off against each other, get the point of the argument across. Um, maybe a bit of um, you know, slap face or whatever. Um, um, and of course, the absolutely brilliant um, don't you walk away from me um, comment being shouted after someone as they're trying to walk away because they finished their side of the argument and you're still thinking, 
no, I've still got something to say. Come back. I need to say it in front of this audience. Um, and so I get my, my, I suppose, my, my love for improv from that because you, it's not scripted. You just can't, you just got to get out there and do it and people have got to believe you. Um, and there's no, I think, greater um, reaction you can get when you had a really good argument or something. Um, you've walked out of the room and it's the absolute worst thing you can hear as a professional motor weekender. But you walk out of the room and people start to clap because we're not in it for the, the applause. We're in it for reality. And, you know, you see two people arguing. You don't go, oh, that was a really good argument. Well done, fam. You know? <laughs> so, um, yeah. It's, it's very different skills to film acting. Uh, what was your um, first film acting role? Uh, first film acting role, um, I, I, I've been doing murder weekends for quite a number of years, and I Twitter was fairly new as well. Um, at that stage. So this is about oh, eight years ago, something like that, maybe. Um, and I came across on Twitter um, a guy called uh, Tony Lane, uh, A.D. Lane, and he had a film on the go then, uh, still does actually, uh, it's called Invasion of the Not Quite Dead, and he was spending time on Twitter just doing 24, 48, 72 hour tweet uh, where he just kept going, he kept tweeting, and it's all about raising awareness. So this is sort of predates crowdfunding. Um, and because it pre predated crowdfunding, if you were an independent filmmaker and you wanted to, other people to give you money to make a film, you just had to raise the awareness, you had to get out there, you had to ask people, and that's what Tony was doing. Uh, one of the things he did, um, and you know, professional actors will go, how oh, dare you, you know, uh, this totally goes against the grain of everything you could possibly do acting-wise. Uh, but one of the things he was doing was just saying, look, give us a, an amount of money, can't remember how much it was now, and you can have a day on location. So I thought, well, I, I do murder weekends. I, I think I can act. Um, I think I could play a character. Uh, but I've actually got no experience on film. So why not? Yeah, I support this guy. Uh, give him some money. Turn up on set and um, and see what it's all about. So. Invasion of the Not Quite Dead, I turned up expecting to be a, quote, lab coat man. Just an extra in the background, white lab coat, gas mask, so not, not visible at all. And just be, just do whatever he wanted me to do, you know, arrive at, I think I arrived around about 10.30 um, in the morning on a Saturday. Uh, due to leave by five, uh, because I mean, as you know, Sam, obviously, uh, film film productions always run on time, <laughs> uh, never delayed. Um, yeah, so at least all yours are, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so I, I turn up for this this extra role, lab coat guy, a uh, bit of background, um, and. The first thing he says to me, um, A.D. Lane says to me, is I swore I'd never do this again. Uh, so I immediately thought, what, invite someone who's not an actor along on some set? Oh, well, yeah, fine, okay, but if you want me to go, says I, I'll, I, you know, I can go. No, he says, no, 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 no. Um, he actually had an actor in mind for a role, and um, he'd, he'd fallen out with the actor the night before. The actor said, well, I'm not turning up in the morning um, Tony says well that's fine I don't need you um, the, the actor says well yes you do because I'm playing this character Tony's response well, that's right I'll sort something out uh, so I turn up and he says to me can you learn some lines can you change your voice slightly um, I fortunately had taken contact lenses with me anyway because I knew I'd be wearing a gas mask and I, I normally wear glasses Wearing glasses under a gas mask, I don't know if you've tried it, it's 
impossible. Um, so I had contact lenses with me anyway. So he says, yeah, put your contacts in. Um, if you wouldn't mind staying a bit later, um, because um, we'll sit on the seat with you saying some lines and so on, and we'll, we'll, we'll make you this character. You can still do the lab coat guy uh, earlier on because you're wearing a gas mask, no one will recognise you. So I end up playing a character called the Creepy Man in Invasion of the Not Quite Dead. And it's only later that I realised that actually this could be a very significant character because he might actually be rather associated with the reason why what's happening in the film is actually happening. So that's Invasion of the Not Quite Dead. He started filming in 2008. They filmed more just recently and you never know, it might actually get released sometime in 2021. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's worth all the stuff I've seen of it says it's worth the wait. But <laughs> I don't know when it's actually going to get released. Uh, so that was that was sort of the first film. So uh, when, more by accident than anything else. So when it comes to performing, what do you want to bring to a role? Not just for like the director, but also from what the audience get from it. What would, what do you try to bring to it? It's that background in, in murder weekends. It's the if you're if you actually if you are a character in front of anywhere between thirty and one hundred and twenty guests, uh, which I have been on a murder weekend, you have to get across the fact that you are that person. It's 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 no more or less than that. Um, you're not acting as such. You are portraying a character, and you're doing whatever that character would do. So that's what I try to bring to anything. It, it's not me being an actor, being me doing something. I, I do try to make sure that, that there's that the character is in there, that I understand the, the, the person inside so that I can actually... I mean, this sounds all very, you know, arty-farty, but it, it, it does... I think help me just to be able to go, okay, I understand the character, I know what they would do and how they would react. Now, I can't do things like accents, I can't change my voice that much, um, I can change my appearance slightly, so, you know, you can look at a number of films that I've done and I'm sure you know, I'd look at it and go well I know it's me um, and I'm sure many people just go oh yeah we understand this is this is a Martin Lee playing a character that's fine um, but what it is trying to what I'm trying to do is actually go no if I'm yeah, as with you Sam um, if, if I play you know a vicar in, in Lonely Hearts then you know, hopefully I come across as a different character to the um, dad character that I played in Toxic Rock. Yeah. And um, had I been in Millennial Killer, which is the other one that's out at the moment, um, far more than I was, because, you know, circumstances behind that changed and I had to play a, a police character right at the end. You don't really see the character in that at all. No. There was no character in that. That was just me going, okay, I need to fill this hole because we've got a hole. Um, so, okay, just just fill that gap. Um, but other stuff that I'm in, um, you know, Mask of Thorn for, uh, for Maiko, uh, the character in that hopefully is different to the vicar, is different to the dad character in Toxic. Um, and, and that's what I try to do, is just what character is there? How would they react in their situation? And is that right that they would react that way? Um, I think one of the projects we've spoken about, Sam, um, which we haven't done yet, um, but I'm, I'm thinking here um, the film um, character called Stephen. I thought you were. <laughs> where, where, yeah, where you have suggested he would do this, and I'm going, no, he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not just a case of going, ah, I think the character would do this. It's also the character wouldn't do that. Um, and, and it's, for me, there's an integrity there. Um, and that probably makes me a real nightmare to work with. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I don't know. I've never worked with myself. <laughs> with, with that in mind, what kind of roles do you want to explore? Uh, I think the it, it's always the ones that challenge. It, it's it's roles and films that challenge, and whether that's challenging me as an actor to be able to do something slightly different, or to to push boundaries, um, or that challenge the audience when watching it, so that they I find the film so absorbing they can't not watch it or so hard to watch because they they don't want to watch the film but they have to uh, or just the character that is um, perhaps ludicrous perhaps extreme uh, certainly unexpected uh, so it's the um, I, I think probably the the best example is in um, Toxic Schlock, where my character um, is, is male, and he's is, is obviously male, um, but the extreme that I went to for that was we wanted a character that dressed female. My my trademark almost is I, I have a goatee. Um, uh, that's my, my facial hair. At the moment, lockdown, <laughs> it's a full beard. But um, it, yeah, I have I have that. I, I obviously couldn't play the character in Toxic Rock with a beard at all, so that had to come off. And I felt it was right for the character, even though he's very male, um, for him to be fully waxed. Uh, there's a scene right at the beginning of um, Toxic Rock where, where actually you see one character applying a, a wax strip um, to my legs and it being removed. I mean, that was just the end of um, the, the removal of hair for that particular role. And I like to think the audience would be going, we would not expect, uh, let's face it, an ancient guy to actually go to that level of um, of, of extremes, maybe, or presenting the character in that exact way, um, and then to be just going, yeah, but this is the character. This is this is how he lives his life. He lives the character lives his life, dressing female. So yeah, of course I'll dress female um, as an actor because it's the character and it's right for them. Um, and particularly, I think the um, the best bit in that film is that short sequence where it's you know the, the, the real long shot, wide shot of um, the group of us walking along um, a, a footpath, uh, me wearing high heels, and just going, yeah, I can wear high heels. <laughs> I can walk along a rocky path. <laughs> I can not fall over. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> I think that's the interesting thing. I've been, having been to like a film festivals with you and seen how audiences have responded to your performances, you've definitely been able to explore those kind of roles where it does make an audience go, whoa, I didn't expect that to happen from someone, as you say, of your age or just like <laughs> yeah. unexpectedness. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and just going into more like that, it, it's the, you need, you need to, why, why do independent filmmaking if you, A, can't have fun and B, if you can't challenge people, um, mm -hmm. and whether that's the, the people you see on the film, on the screen, or the people watching. Oh. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's, it, it comes also back Sam to um, Lonely Hearts yeah, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the screen of that at Horror on Sea oh, yeah. at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think that challenged everybody including us <laughs> it was being in the men's toilets afterwards and hearing them still talking about what happens to you at the end of the film and just kind of like sensitively you know like clearly feeling the pain as if it would happen to them yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's film. It, it's not real. <laughs> but but even better than just you know it, it, that 
sort of immediately after the film has been screened and people talk about it, which is great. Um, actually, a, a film festival being able to talk to the audience and get their feedback instantly afterwards mm. is the fact that on that weekend, on the um, was it was the first weekend or the second weekend of that year, I can't actually remember now. Um, but uh, I think it. Certainly, it was the, it was on a Sunday um, that um, someone said to me, "Oh, yeah, you were Lonely Hearts, weren't you?" Um, so it's not just the case of immediately after the screening; it was 24 hours later. It could have been a week later, yeah. Um, and again, that was Horror on Sea 2019. Um, Horror on Sea January 2020. Um, you weren't there at the time, Sam, but um, someone said to me, oh, yeah, didn't you have Lonely Hearts here last year? Nice. Uh, that's great. Mm. People remembering after a year, yes, it has an impact. Why would we not want people to be talking about the film a year after we'd screened it? It's <laughs> so, that, yeah, absolutely, let's, let's push on that. Um, and that's what I want to provide. Um, almost someone who I regard myself as crazy not stupid so therefore yeah let's do something crazy that people rem will remember uh, because that's best for me as an actor for the filmmaker for the, the production um, cast and crew like, uh, everybody wants to be in a memorable film mm. so that's what we should be achieving and that's what I want to, to participate in so <clears throat> with your limitations now obviously there's going to be every ethical limitation or even like physical limitations of what you wouldn't do for a role so we're taking that out of consideration are there any particular characters that you really just would not want to play whatsoever um I it's a difficult question uh, because I don't know um there are certain things that are just not me. Um, I, I I would say that in normal in the normal world, um, there there is a. This is probably a bad example, but it's, it's, it's all I can think of at the moment. Is um, or one of the things I can think of. Um, the there, there is a there is a there is a swear word. It's a nasty word. Uh, begins with the letter C. I never use it, and I will not use it even on this podcast. I will not say it. Um, but you know the C word. Yeah. Um, and I'm not talking cancer. Um, <laughs> the I will not use that word. So therefore, if I see that word in a script that I my character has to say it, then I would be instantly going, oh, not sure, not sure. Um, but even that, um, I have used the word on screen because you know, the, the director has said, absolutely important that you use it. Uh, it comes back to my point about you look at the character, uh, you, you, you try to inhabit the character, and would the character to use that word? Yes, fine. Then I will use it, and I, I will push it out with as much venom as I possibly can muster, um, albeit it probably immediately saying if I'm using it against the person, um, say immediately afterwards to the, the actor playing that character, I'm terribly sorry, it's not me. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's saying stupid like that that would just still be a case of oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't like to do it but if I have to then I will um, and the other example that's in my head is um, and yeah, I, I, I will mention one of the people involved uh, because you know him uh, Tony Newton uh, asked me to do um, a film for him um, some years back and um, the part of well, what we didn't film was a scene with me holding 
one or two um, airsoft rifles um, in a outdoor environment. And we didn't shoot that scene because I didn't know about it beforehand. Mm. And I arrived uh, where I was going to stay, which was uh, with the basement filmmaking uh, crew. And I walked into this small house and um, almost the first thing I saw were these two guns, six foot long, in the living room. And... I was told, oh, yeah, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to do this with those or you're going to do this with those. Um, and I refused to handle them because I, I'm not a guns person. I just didn't want to go down there, um, not without having thought about it. Mm. And that's why this is a difficult question for me to answer because someone can say, do this. Um, and... If it's a, you will do it now, and I've, I've just told you about this, uh, and therefore no thinking time, then my answer is going to potentially be, no way. But give me time to think about it. Give me time to work out that actually, yeah, this can be made to work for that character. I can sort of justify the use of this particular scene, or the, the props, or, or whatever it is. Um, and then, yes, I will do it. But I need a bit of thinking time. Is why I say I'm, I'm crazy, not stupid. I will do crazy things. Um, but I need to make sure that I'm in the right mind set for it. So I recently, um, having been to Horror on Sea, great film festival, if anyone hasn't been to it, I should go. Um, it's, I, I, I met uh, Baz Hancher and for his film that he's currently just finishing, uh, Hate Little Rabbit, uh, he wanted a character who would hang himself. So, yeah, I wanted to give him a good hanging scene. So, to the extent of, we know it can be faked. We know that to make a a hanging scene that looks good you shoot the top half and you shoot the bottom half um, so you top half you get all the facial expressions you get the, the in this case a chain around the neck you can see it biting in you can really feel the pain of being hung um, and then you cut to seeing the, the legs kicking in empty space or kicking the stepladder away kicking legs in empty space and then you just keep swapping between the two and the audience think yeah we've, we've seen a hanging mm. what I wanted to achieve was a full length shot of clearly me just hanging uh, by my neck from um, from a chain um, and you get a full length shot and there is no doubt that this guy has been hung um, I attempted it couldn't do it and that's the physical limitation that you referred to, uh, Sam, that, um, yeah, sometimes you just have to go, if I was stupid, I would carry on and try to do this and really try to give that particular shot, which would be absolutely excellent, um, to the filmmaker. But physical limitations, I just cannot do it. And the reason why I couldn't do it was it's actually quite tiring doing the earlier part of the scene where you shoot in top half, bottom half, um, and, and just basically my, my, my body was tired. So I couldn't actually give what I really wanted to give. Um, and the practical point, I'm, I'm crazy not stupid, the practical point is I could feel the chain actually um, squashing my throat, my larynx. So at that point you just go, no, this is really not going to work. So nah, I won't do it. And I will always approach something like that saying, I'll give it a go. But if I really feel I can't do it, if I really feel it could hurt me for real, then nah. It, 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 it's not going to happen, um, but I'll go as far as I possibly can because that's what's important. People looking at something and saying, "This is real." People should, the audience should be questioning, "How did they do that?" When the only answer should be, "Well, we did it." And then you just got to let people make their own mind up as to whether you're telling the truth or not.
So with that acceleration, let's go to a more happier place. What, do you have a do you have a favorite role? Um, favorite role. I in Murder Weekend terms, I think my favorite role is playing the um, the detective inspector because uh, the detective inspector in a Murder Week Weekend is happily, cheerfully useless. <laughs> for, you know, we, we, uh, the way the murder weekend works is you, you generally have free death over the course of the weekend. You as a hotel guest are trying to solve who done it. Um, and all you get is a useless copper who turns up, who doesn't seem to know what he's doing, um, talks to you a couple of times, you know, so there, there's, a, there's a murder. So he tells you how they've died and anything, you know, like they've, they've got any drugs in their system or whatever, anything like that. But seems really incompetent until after the third death on a Saturday night when suddenly the role of the copper changes and it's more a case of yeah use them as a sounding board so and therefore you get people actually talking to you about their all their theories on this this death um, and, and then suddenly surprisingly uh, 11.30 on a Sunday morning he's standing in front of the um, the audience hotel guests um, as they anywhere between 30 and 120 um, guests in front of you telling them exactly what's happened why it's happened and everything and he seems to have pieced it all together in a matter of moments <laughs> well yeah actually because we know what the answer is before we even start but um so you get great interaction with with guests um and you're talking with real people in a film sense i don't think i have an absolute favorite role i appreciate the roles that i have done some more than others and the ones i will talk about are probably the ones that have had an impact on me so therefore toxic shock dad um, the lonely hearts the, the vicar um, mask of fawn uh, and, and the, the father in, in that one um, Invasion of the Not Quite Dead, um, Creepy Man, probably isn't a favourite role, but it's one that I hope, I'm, when I eventually see it, <laughs> um, I, I'm going to be very proud about. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's probably what's there more than enjoy. It's, it's probably just a, yeah, when you're doing it, as long as it's fun. Okay, so I, uh, I did one Reese, a short film recently with Jason Impey. Um, and this was very much in COVID um, filming uh, technique of a uh, very small crew, uh, one actor, me, um, there was five of us in total and that's it, um, filming outside, distanced, um, and it was just a fun shoot. It's fun to be filming again after a three-month period of absolutely nothing. I know, I know you've recently had that as well, Sam. You've had that feeling of, hey, it's great to be back working. Um, and, um, and again, when you're filming something, it's just as long as it's fun, then it's always going to be enjoyable. And, yeah, I, I, I still... I've sort of rattled on for a bit. Uh, the reason for that is, have I actually got a favourite character? I don't think I have. I've, I've yet to find my all-time favourite character. That character is probably still coming. Yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, this leads me quite nicely into the last question. So my actual favourite performance from you is in Monstrous from uh, Jackson Bachelor's film, which obviously is still in like the final stages and no one's seen yet. Yeah. But I think it's your best performance. I think it's hilarious. I think the character comes across perfectly how Jackson wanted it and how me and him wrote it. And I can't wait for people to see that guy. So that kind of leads me into just, you know, let's have a bit talk about what you do have in the future. Now, obviously, with COVID times, you had a lot more, but, you know, things changed, unfortunately. But you, you yeah, had a few changed. performances last year and some stuff. So what can we see for our festivals in 2021 from you? Um, who knows? Um, because I mean, festivals are all unto themselves, aren't they? Um, yeah, <laughs> you know true. that. <laughs> you know, all, all the all the films that you expect to get into a festival. No, no, all <laughs> the rejection. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that you say that about um, monstrous, and because that's not a character that I've talked about because you know, it's big film, but it's not out there. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that you think 
that that character is different to the other characters because, as I said earlier, that's what I want to achieve. I think it is as well. Um, and of that character, I was very much channeling the um, the sort of Nigel Farage view of Britain and Europe, uh, monstrous being set around the, uh, the, the Brexit referendum. Um, and so, therefore, and, and with the latitude of just being able to go and talk, improvise about you know the particular scene, the subject that needed to be covered in that scene, and just being able to say the most ludicrous of things. And um, it, it, it's the watching it back, pre-release. Hey, um, <laughs> well, it's the watching it back and just going. I really don't know why I said yes. Yes, let's have cake. Because that is such a useless line, inconsequential, but I understand it makes Jackson laugh. It's so British. Just because of where it is. And, uh, you know, uh, so therefore, um, I think it's an area that I hadn't necessarily explored being a, almost a, a comic character. Um, he doesn't think he's comic, obviously. Yeah. He, he thinks he's deadly serious about Europe and how bad it is and the, the need for the referendum and the fact that we have to leave Europe. Um, but um, that's not necessarily my view, so yeah, you, you forced me to act, damn you. Um, and the same with Mask of Fawn to an extent. I play that very straight, but people look on it and go, it's quite comical um, in terms of it's so serious. Um, oh, another Maiko one, um, Slapeful Falls. I play a mad professor style character, and again, that comes across very comical, whereas I'm just going totally serious on it. So it's that, that is that comic area that I probably might like want to go and explore at some point in the future. In terms of stuff coming out, um, as I say, I did Baz Hancher's um, Hate Little Rabbit, which he's hoping to get finished and submitted for Horror on the Sea next year. Um, that's a feature. Um, the I've worked with Tom Lee Rutter and... Um, his uh, pocket uh, film of superstitions, um, which he has also been delayed with COVID on filming and will come out at some point, probably next year. Uh, so, yeah, whether that gets into horror on the sea, I, I, I don't think he's planning on putting it in there because he doesn't think it will be ready in time. <laughs> I should have been filming for Myco Entertainment and Slasher House Free. Um, in fact, actually, just before lockdown, I was doing a short, um, producing, directing a short for Trash Arts Killers Free on the Sunday of whatever day it was in March, just before lockdown, so around about the 22nd. Um, and on the Saturday, I was due to have been filming a Sleepful Falls a short film for Myco. Um, both of those shoots got cancelled because uh, lockdown um, or lockdown was imminent and we decided it wasn't safe to be filming. So you know, that gets cancelled. As a side effect of that, there's one we were should have been shooting at the beginning of May, yeah. which was um, also has been deferred. Um, so that's underneath working title um, and I should have been out in Switzerland at the end of um, June in order to film a feature with a uh, Swiss filmmaker um, very much pushing for extreme horror on that one um, and uh, that's been delayed until sometime next year probably and that's mainly delayed because I can make it across to Switzerland because we weren't able to travel out of the UK. So, yeah, the, the, the virus has had a big impact on 
filmmaking in all uh, all levels. Uh, I just hope that, well, I know things, will, opportunities will come along, and I will always be pushing myself in to try to work for um, certain directors that I've got on my hit list. Um, something hopefully will come out from them, um, and we can get it shot in the. You know, the next year or so, and, and then probably it would take us about a year before we're back to where we were in the UK film industry, um, just trying to make um, good films. Fingers, you will always be prolific, and you've been prolific over the last few years, and there will always be opportunities, like you said, so you're always keeping your ear out on it. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. I hope you have a good evening. And yeah, yeah I should shall do, yeah. And I um, look forward to listening to all this back because I've forgotten exactly what I said at the beginning. <laughs> That's usually the case, you know. But, yeah, be out on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> it's out now, it's not on Sunday. Yeah. Thank you for joining yeah. us. No problems, thank you, Sam. Bye-bye. Bye. Cool, thanks for that, Sam. Great chat. Um, so yeah, this month, guys, in our monthly horror chat, we decided to discuss vampires and um, vampires in films and um, what the, the kind of connotations and stuff are of them being within a film. So for me personally, to kick it off, my personal favourite would have to be Interview with a Vampire. So I like the way that the, the kind of structure of it, so that they, they basically shows you what it's like to be as that person in that age throughout generations of time and the kind of connotations that that then brings and because if, if you think about Brad Pitt's character he basically saves Kirsten Dunst but then well kind of in a sense curses her for the rest of her life and you see that develop as she gets older but doesn't age and she can't deal with that and basically wants to get out of it well it's also is it, the thing with that film is it is that kind of if you're stuck at such a young age and you've lived through every single time, you're living a life of decadence and hedonistic kind of drives. Mm. So even in the way they're dressed, they're all they're dressed in much higher clothes, aren't they? And they're very decadent. They're having the, the big kind of social events. They're borderline, from what I remember, like socialites in that film, but it's like 1700 socialites, you know? Yeah. Because it's the whole idea of him even recounting it to someone who's a journalist. That's the whole story, isn't it? He's yeah, recounting yeah. the whole life from like modern world. And I think... Um, or at least from whenever he got turned into a vampire. Yeah. And that's it. Like vampire films can always represent that side of life that's a little bit more dangerous. Well, I think that's the, that, that's what I think is so interesting about vampires is you can show so many different aspects of it. So you've not only got that infinite life, you've got that danger element, mm. the idea of sort of um, feeding off another human being in order to keep your own life going, um, that sort of like super strength kind of idea, that transformation into like other things. You know, there's so many different elements. I think as well, it's, it's, with that... You can um, take a vampire story and put it at any piece of, like, or any time in history. And you can use it to analyze any kind, like, so many different elements of things that, you know, you couldn't necessarily do um, with with other, you know, in such I a mean, sort of physical way. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. I would, I'd argue with vampires because they're so down to what it is to be human mm. and what it is in growth and change. So um, if we were to look at, when looking at vampires being stuck at a young age, that idea, if you look at youth, and if you look at the film in particular, um, Fright Night, yeah. Fright Night is very much like that's, you know, it's about some teenagers who find out a vampire is moving next door. He's all mysterious, kind of handsome, kind of sexy. The females around him are attracted towards him. And there's that fight of the temptation of him being like, you become a vampire. And it's that idea through hormones of... It's going to say it's like puberty. Yeah. And you see that constantly with vampire films, the temptation, the desire to try and like be something more. But it's never, because it's, it, goes, it surpasses what humanity's drive for economic reasoning. It's literally for elongating life and being stronger, like you said. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what, what you always find in vampire films is eventually, and again, like a turn um, into a vampire, it's there's that point of well, how long is this going to go on? Mm. I have lived a long life that I don't want to live anymore, and I think that's the vampire curse. 
Like every sort of film will go back to that element of sure, it's great to live forever. It's great to do all this, but there are many things you're going to be sacrificing. I think as well with that, it's almost the um, the mental health side of it as well like how many times can you go through because the, 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 like even with interview with a vampire they kind of come into contact with so many different people throughout the course of the film and it, it, it does this with loads of different vampire films as well but like are you willing or are you headstrong enough to fall in love with someone or to care about someone yeah. enough that you can let them die um or do you turn them like and then that brings its own connotations as well because then you've put them into that kind of curse as, as well that you're living so it's that whole kind of mental stability throughout it are you strong enough to deal with that extra pressure of love and loss well, I, think it's, I think it's interesting because this is obviously what we've taken from like modern vampire films have become more about this but when you look back to sort of the original um, like Nosferatu it's very and things dark like, and it's much more about the um, the predatory sort of nature of it in mm. some ways, and like the, the, that slow kind of like uh, slow kind of attack. It's not it's not so much a, you know they're, they're, they're sort of walking up to them. They're, they are under their trance. They they've have them under control entirely. And uh, I'd argue with with Nosferatu, if we look at the time nineteen twenty two, yeah. So that was post World War One, mm. and what Nosferatu does so beautifully and bleakly is the grimness, the fact that death is slowly spreading and it's coming from Europe back to Britain. And it's very much a reflection of how people felt. So it does play really nicely into that. And if you look, that's the thing, the history of vampire films. Weirdly, vampires have been around since the beginning of cinema. There have always been vampire stories. And you could connect the fact that vampires as a supernatural idea have been there since the beginning of time. But if you really look at the fact when Dracula was written, it was what? 1890 something around that sort of time hmm. so cinema's just born around the corner that fascination with what a vampire is still going to be there and yet Nosferatu was the first I suppose copyright free version of Dracula <laughs> it's a similar story a couple of little tweaks and um, I think with Nosferatu as well when you look at how that story was retold from Werner Herzog's perspective yeah it again returns to that idea of something that because he's a, a vampire in pain. Mm. He doesn't want, he, he has to live, but he doesn't want to live on forever. He's almost in pain with his movements and stuff. And a lot of that's down to Klaus Kinski's very mysteriously strange interpretation of it. But then I suppose if the original guy, Max Schreck, disappeared when he was playing Nosferatu, you got to go a little bit further when going with a remake. I think. <coughs> It's interesting because, like, with vampire films, I think there has been a progression in terms of rather than it just being predatory. So initially, it's the fear element. It's like there's this creature that you don't really know much about that's lurking in the shadows and can strike you and kill you or turn you, like, depending on their preference. Um, to now, you have a lot more emotionally driven from the perspective of the vampires and the emotion that they're going through. But in terms of that predatory style, I think what it does is it plays on the vulnerability of people. So again, with the the whole sort of teenage thing, yeah, yeah. it's like, um, especially with Fright Night, I know in the remake, like you have his girlfriend ends up getting turned and he can't deal with it. And it's like, you know, you're at a loss. Well, even, even Lost Boys does the same thing. Yeah. It's a very much 80s thing. When you see those vampire films that were aimed at teenage audience, it played on the vulnerabilities where... There are that especially I always find in Lost Boys where there are the borderline between being kids still and then oh shit there's vampires here and his older brother's the one who's becoming a vampire but it's the younger brother who's reading the comic books and trying to you know so it's, it's that weird battle between becoming from a kid into an adult yeah and vampires are that dangerous element where you know you could live forever but you can still have that like adult life I guess you know so what would you guys make of From Dusk Till Dawn because that's probably one of the, the weirdest vampire films that I've ever seen is that it completely subverts your expectation from what it starts off as as a film to well, then what happens halfway through it's interesting I recently learned something about From Dusk Till Dawn which I didn't know it was originally going to be a Tales of the Crypt film 
Really? So when you think of it like that, it's like, oh, it's a classic sort of horror twist, really. Um, from Dust for Dawn, it's a weird one as well, because there's, there's like three films and there's the TV series of it. And it's more mythology based than the first film leads on to mm. because of the history of like, as you saw at the end, when the camera zooms out, it's basically like, almost like an Aztec fucking temple and yeah. all those cars in the pit. So it's actually playing more with like, yeah, it was leading you into a bigger story, I guess, with, with From Dust to Dawn. From Dust to Dawn, though, it is really just like, it's a 90s film. It's a 90s film through and through. It's got Tarantino, it's got Robert Riggs, it's got bloody Harvey Keitel in it. It's clearly like, it's a brilliant film, don't get me wrong. And it slips into that, that other area of like action horror with um, especially vampires. Um, another film that came out around exactly the same time, which does not work as well, and this is my problem with vampire action films, is actually John Carpenter's Vampires, which is an action western vampire film that fails completely. It's just too... There's a point where vampires can be very, very cheesy, mm. yeah. and it's really easy to do that within action, because you have to obviously prioritize looking cool. Yeah. And vampires instinctively are quite cool concepts because they're dangerous, not because they can do loads of action CGI stunts all over the place. It's my main problem. Or with they have hip clothing. Yeah, it's like the underworld <laughs> films. It plays into an audience that's already kind of like, you know... Emo, goth. Yeah, vampires and goths are always going to be two things that connect together because of Dracula. Because he's, you know, he's the man in black. He's, he's gothic as fuck. So when you come round all the way to having, what's her face, Kate Beckinsale in tight leathers running around doing action scenes it's kind of like yeah it's cool I guess but it's sort of it's just you're playing to an audience by that point vampires are more interesting to use as a, as a sort of tool to like uh, analyse something else mm. within humanity that's like a desire or something like that I think when you start just making it like you know they're badass vampires I think it, it sort of loses its it does and it doesn't I think like in re- more recent times, when films filmmakers have tried to do that, it hasn't landed. Like the Underworld, first one's decent, but then it just tails off, and they try to make a franchise out of it, and it just doesn't work. But then I would argue that Blade, well, yeah, does it yeah, Blade, I, I didn't That's, think about that. But then I think of that more as a comic book film than yeah, it's, uh, yeah, vampires. yeah. But it's, it's, it's like it's vampires. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. The thing that makes Blade work so well is it has a real love for exploitation, and I think um, there's a whole. Like in the seventies, black exploitation. They did a lot of vampire films. There was um, Ganja and Hess. There was Blackula, and um, those sort of stories were very much more like prominently powerful black men, and almost like it's a hard one because the vampirism becomes then a cultural thing. Yeah, <clears throat> of who they are and who, who the archetype stereotype of the beast of who they are as well. Because there is always that beastly element of a vampire, and even um, Francois Capellas did it with his version of Dracula. Where it showed him as that was Gary Oldman. Yeah, it shows him as the older man that's desperately dying, and then it shows him as the younger man, but it also shows him as this literal monster where he runs around like a wolf monster. And I like that idea of vampirism. There's that fine line where you're, you know, vampire man, where you're pure beast, mm. and then there's the line where you're just elegantly living through life and taking what you want. Almost, it's. Uh, it's a weird one. There is the other perspective as well with vampire films. When you have the one, I suppose, like the, the Remfield sort of character. And when I think of a modern interpretation of that, where it's kind of a beautiful love story, but still innocent, but not, is um, let the right one in. Yeah. Because from that, your, your, your main character is the little boy. And you never see any of the parents. The camera's like barely ever shows what the parents are. And him connecting with this little girl who happens to be a vampire. And when she has to feed, she takes on that more beastly side completely. And um, that's the thing. You can tell a very beautiful connecting love story or something. Because it's not love. It's that like that eternal connection because they've been around for so long. And when you put them with someone who hasn't been around that long and start to understand the world mm. and it connects, they even achieves it in... Um, the remake let me is it let me in yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, you, you see a lot and of course it gets watered down with, with Twilight and stuff like that I was just you, about to ask you guys what your thoughts were on Twilight <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a weird one right Twilight first film is a good film it's it, I mean I haven't watched it in a long time but it, as a story it's just it just it's because uh, the budget was a lot lower it was an indie film the first film like it wasn't hundreds of millions budget it was like 20 million it was made by a good director 
And it just went, oh, it's good self-contained. It plays with all those vampire ideas of living forever, youthful love. But then it, they sparkle in the sun, Sam. Come on. <laughs> I, I would watch it in a rush. I think, I think, to be honest, they're based like the... the sort of uh, original material isn't exactly strong foundations no, no. to start off on with Twilight anyway but um, uh, and that's going it. back to that sort of like action thing I think the most interesting sort of vampire action film I, I would say it's, it was action but action horror probably um, Van Helsing uh, Affliction uh, um, Afflicted Afflicted yeah Afflicted um, yeah that's a very interesting vampire film uh, because you uh, it, it's essentially about two guys uh, they go away on holiday I think it's to France Paris is it Paris yeah because the yeah um, the two American guys and they're sort of videoing their own holiday and so it's it's found footage style but one of them starts transforming into a vampire um, and and like you, you're just seeing sort of everything he's got like a body cam on when he's like yeah, it's when he's finally transformed he's leaping from building to building fucking attacking people inside it's just mental it's crazy crazy and it looked good it, it looks mm. believable there's an interesting point when it comes because that film is pretty much like the transformation mm. and it's very important with vampire films that process of transformation yeah. and because vampire as a, a law has been around for so long especially in films we know what kind of things to expect and you can play it for laughs or you can play it for crazy absurdism like Vampire's Kiss because Vampire's Kiss is basically American Psycho but instead of him wanting to be a fucking serial killer he wants to be a vampire or thinks he's a vampire <laughs> and he has rubber fangs and he eats cockroaches and he sleeps in his coffin that he's made but which is basically just his sofa spun and he just loses his mind because he's a yuppie and they're already sociopaths and that story plays it really well because you know the archetypes of a vampire film. And when you play it for comedy effects, like what we do in the shadows, you know what all those things that are going to come up. And you're almost excited when they're playing on those stereotypes like the coffins mm. or at bats. The way they play bats in that is hilarious because they give them a bit more personality where they're fighting each other. <laughs> and because their world is completely aware that it exists, there's no surprise. It's all when they're like, oh, bat fight. You know what I mean? <laughs> they like, almost play up to Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, vampires have been around for so long that we can kind of lean into that a bit, where we know what to expect from a vampire film. You don't necessarily need to be like, oh, well, here's a new thing you didn't know about vampires. Because mm-hmm. then it goes, well, it's not really a vampire. I think Van Helsing's awesome as well. But that, again, see, I don't like, it's just action vampire films yeah, made for teenagers. But it does play in every single archetype. You see them all. Like it, I remember one good bit in that film, and that's the mirror shot where he's dancing with her and he's not in the mirror sort of thing. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and it's great. There are so many things like that you see and you're always like, well, how are they going to artistically interpret that vampire thing? Hmm. I mean, I talked about it last week, but The Addiction, this black and white vampire film set in New York by Abel Ferreira. Um, it completely encapsulates everything you expect in a vampire film, but it's on a gritty level and it's just played around a bit and just given a weird absurdism to it but also really darkly gothic at the same time because it is a really dark concept of someone surviving through drinking blood you know that the rest of the body will continue going as long as it gets that drive it's i think that's a that's one of the main things about about the way that um you know, vampire films look at sort of humanity is through that that self-discipline kind of uh that you know knowing that you shouldn't do something and deciding not to do it and like the idea of turning into a vampire you know there's the transformation sort of moment that someone kind of uh, characters often like lose it and can't control themselves and and stop being able to um, rationalize things in the same way as they did and and it's interesting because that's that plays through not not only violence and their bloodlust but also sex Mm. it comes through on um, like many many other aspects that kind of makes you question our sort of the, how humans um, behave and how we think and how we you know moderate ourselves essentially I think that's why vampire story is always going to be there because like you said it connects with who we are as humans mm. and for a lot of people things they don't want to focus on a lot of vampire stories will always have that there is a more repressed either hero or someone who's going to be turned and then the more dangerous I suppose free like yeah. vampires, generally speaking, in a sexuality sense, 
they're not rigid. <laughs> they're not like, yeah. I'm only going to sleep with one person type thing. I'm going to sleep with whoever I want and spread, you know, the vampirism around. Vampirism. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's one thing that I haven't seen uh, va- a vampire film do. And, I, you know, there might be the film out there that looks at this. Um, please link me in the uh, description in the comments if you if you do know why um, uh, but one that explores uh, you know because you talked about how vampires uh, are freer than we are and they are able to just do whatever they want to do yeah but really are they free because they have to feed on on uh, what you that's, I suppose that's let the right one in isn't well, it? that's pretty much like you do see that story in really good vampire stories mm-hmm. they have to play with that idea because there's like when you see those group vampire ones like um, Near Dark or Lost Boys one of those films there's always going to be one in the group who feels like yeah this is it yeah. there's going to be the moral conscious within another member of the group who's going to be like is this it and yeah. is this right? Yeah, but I, th- I think that generally it, morality has to play a role. Yeah, morality. Role. Yeah, but 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 freedom. If you, uh, like you are reliant on on other people in in order to feed and to survive so a, in that way. You can't self sustain. So it's like you're free, but you're not free. There's a film called Daybreakers with Ethan Hawke in it. it came out towards the end of the noughties, and um, I think it was the noughties or 2010, something like that. Um, and basically, it's set ten years in the future it's 2009 so set 10 years in the future 2019 and a plague has basically turned pretty much all of humanity into vampires Mm. and there's a shortage of blood so they have to try and work out a way to save humanity or vampire race to then kind of keep going oh that's interesting it's a good concept it's just not an amazing film but the thing is with vampirism when you think of the people who want to be a vampire yeah Mm. like the ones who do all the work for them and all that kind of stuff the very drive to be a vampire is it's supposed to be an elite species Mm. that it is better than being human so there is always that line where it it is something that a lot of people can't achieve so when, when you see that the the morality line is always going to come at the end it's like being rich it's like being part of a rich elite group and then realizing oh shit they do a lot of dark stuff to keep rich <laughs> it's that same thing it's like yeah. a strange sacrifice they've done you know yeah cool so that was an interesting chat thanks for listening guys hope you enjoyed this week's um, podcast so as ever please leave us a like leave us a comment if there's any kind of vampire films that you feel that we missed please leave a comment um, and let us know what they were. Um, Also, check out our website, which is www.trasharts.co.uk. We'll leave a link in the description below as well so you guys can check that out and um, keep up to date with all of our films and um, short films, etc. Everything that's trash arts. Um, But other than that, guys, please subscribe and uh, trash arts take out. Bye.